Welcome to Measures of Truth, a His Dark Materials podcast. I'm Caitlin. I'm Alan. I'm Francis. And I'm Anya. And today we're discussing the fourth episode of the second season of His Dark Materials, Tower of Angels. This episode was written by Namsi Khan, who is just starting her career, but she's written for other TV shows uh, like the show Humans, which has um, Gemma Chan in it, by the way. My favorite. Yeah, Caitlin's a fan. She's Uh, the best. Leanne Wilhelm returns to direct this episode and a special guest star in this episode playing... Giacomo Paradisi is the genre legend Terrence Stamp, who has appeared in Superman, Star Wars, Alien Nation, and basically anything that you will let him be in. Uh, he's in a million things. Yeah. I, when he first came on screen, I was like, I recognize that dude. And I looked him up and I was like, oh, from everything. Gotcha. Yeah, right. <laughs> I love that guy. So in this week's episode, Lee finds Grumman, Will loses some fingers but gains a knife, and Mrs. Coulter finds out that Asriel wasn't first to travel to another world and follows Boreal through a door in to Chitigatsi. They finally explained it. Thank you for doing what I asked you to, Bad Wolf. I know that it was about my dissatisfaction. You, you did it. Explained it by saying that he just sort of sneaks through. Yeah. Like, which. That's a bit of garbage. I guess, no. It's weird. I feel like they are being pretty consistent about the fact that it takes specters a while to, like, find your scent and hunt you down. Because, like. Oh, yeah. I'm cool with that. They. That's fine. It takes quite a while for them, for the specters to find Giacomo and Tulio. Like, I feel like a long time has passed because the fight happened when it was daytime. And they don't get um, hunted down by the specters until, like, the sun and the lighting is quite different. Do you Mm. think that that was, like, a continuity thing? Or do you think they wanted it to be creepy? Yes. Because I'm I'm leaning towards the latter. It's mood. Yeah, yeah. definitely. It's definitely creepiness. Like, Okay, but I feel like it can be both. I'm not blaming them. I think it's great. I I do think they did a good job there. I'm just being an ass, as per usual. (laughs) You you don't need to argue with me. I'm just being an asshole. But I want to. That's. But I agree with you, is what I'm saying. Yeah, they make it sound like if you hang out long enough, the specters are definitely going to get you, but you have Mm -hmm. some time. You know, it's not like instantaneous at all. I guess my problem is I, I just think of it in the way the book describes it. So in the book, they talk about how 
when Ezreal blasted open his door, like the city is just overrun with specters, mm-hmm. you know, and we see like two or three. And I, I actually really love that scene. I think it is really well done. So I'm not complaining. It's just different than how I imagine it. Yeah, um, my only complaint was like, where does that portal go now? We need to literally see it. And they showed us that it's not the same as it used to be. So I'm just glad they did that. All right. What were our general feelings about this episode? Overall thoughts? I'll go first. I I haven't gone first in a while. I felt that it was not a bad episode. Um, It's always hard to do the middle episode of this season. And... A lot of see uh, a lot of series just kind of get that wrong, and it slows down, and it becomes obviously filler. This wasn't; it kept it going. It didn't slow down really. It was, it was good. Like it was to me. It wasn't the most inspiring one I've ever had ever watched, but it was, it was a very good episode, and I'd definitely watch it again. That's interesting because I just really loved this one. I thought it was very good. Like there were a couple of rough bits. That definitely rubbed me very much the wrong way. But overall, I found all three plot lines were really, really good. And even though they're acting independently of each other, they did a good job of referencing each other mm-hmm. and therefore mm-hmm. kind of tying them all together. And I liked that. And I liked I liked every scene almost, you know, like I was riveted. I felt like Amir Wilson should win an award for this episode. I liked his performance so much. I just like saw a lot of subtle things in his performance and it like elevated every moment that he was in it for me. Like, I don't know, like he just really did it for me this time. And I was, I was so impressed. I totally agree. I thought his portrayal of pain was so good. And uh, I think he and Daphne Keene do such a good job of subtly playing off each other. Um, Like, you can tell that they have great acting chemistry and I think it's just growing with every episode. Um, like it really feels mm-hmm. like the characters are starting to know each other and notice each other um, in, on like a different level than they were before. Yeah, agreed. And sorry, Francis, I know you didn't say that you hated it. I just <laughs> thought it was interesting that you were like, yeah, it was good. And I was like, I loved it. It's just classic <laughs> British <laughs> understatement. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> not a bad episode. Like, it, it was like it was really good. It just possibly it didn't help that I watched it at like four in the morning. I think so. It probably yeah, I was a bit fair. tired when I was processing it. But like, it struck me as being a good episode. I enjoyed it, but not like a standout one. Where if I was going to show someone one episode of this to really get them like into the whole spectacle mm-hmm. of it, even without understanding the story too much. It's probably not the one I'd choose. So I only have two this time. I feel really proud of myself. I think it's a tie between Mary Malone kicking Boreal out of her lab and um, the exchange between Lyra and Will, um, where she calls him the bearer of the knife and he calls her Lyra Silvertongue. Mm. That was really good. And easy with those words to like, like they're kind of corny, but those those actors did it very well. Yeah, and actually it was you know? definitely. It was interesting. I feel like the first time I watched the episode, it did come across as like a little bit corny and I was like, "Oh, I don't know if I like it." And then the second time I watched the episode, I was like, "Oh, I think this is my favorite part." So, I think like once you kind of <laughs> I- adjust to it, like and and 
like really think about it from their characters' perspectives. I don't know. It, it comes across differently to me. Yeah, I felt it was tongue in cheek. Like they knew it was a little bit corny. Yeah, and like, yeah. that's kind of a bit of the fun. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I guess I'm taking Anya's traditional role, and I have a whole bunch of favorite moments. Uh, I loved the almost the last scene with Mary Malone talking to the shadows. I just mm. think it's almost word for word from the book, which I I think I've mentioned this elsewhere was actually the very first bit of these books that I ever read because oh, right. like a friend just handed that page to me and said read this I think you'll like this book and that's what so that's what got me to read the books so it just means a lot to me that scene um and, and they did it great I loved the creeping through the streets at the end with the specters I think they did that scene so well and it was truly kind of like there was tension and it was creepy and I just love Mrs. Coulter she's always fabulous and so subtle in all of her face <laughs> movement I don't even know what to say but like every time the camera was on her face you could just see the layers and oh it was so good her outfit was amazing that blue number great yeah um Hester always just yes I love Hester that bit where they're blowing really fast and the wind in her fur she looked so happy I love Hester and as we've already mentioned, Daphne Keene and Amir Wilson and their fabulous acting, which somehow manages to take some really rough scenes and make them 10 times better. I agree with that, because if you really think about what this episode is doing, there's a whole lot of exposition, but it really doesn't feel that way once you get And you past get it twice, opening. but I'm going to talk about that more in our oh, yeah. least favorite part. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think every of every one of the storylines is kind of a lot of exposition, but they, yeah, it never feels like it. It's really good. I was super excited, like you said, for the cave scene. Um, like the episode, I was like, wow, all of this was great. Maybe my favorite scene will be the one where Will gets his fingers cut because uh, I thought that was handled like so well. And actually, at one point, in the cave at the end Metatron's cube shows up on the screen. And I was like, Holy shit. Are we doing sacred geometry on this show? That's amazing. Uh, and so like I freaked out and started to do all kinds of research and I will talk about that, uh, for about 90 minutes later in this episode. Excellent. Because I have no idea what Metatron's cube is at all. <laughs> Same. <laughs> Teach us. I only know from anime, so this will be good. Um, <laughs> That's how I know it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, literally, that was on the screen for like one second, and I thought, ooh, Alan's going to love having that to talk about. <laughs> That's funny. Um, my favorite part, I really like Andrew Scott, and I really liked his portrayal of Grumman. Generally, he's got a slightly menacing, slightly unpredictable vibe. And I felt that really added to the character who, for me, it was slightly underwhelming in the books. Um, he's like, he's, he's meant to be this like mysterious person. Then he kind of just feels a little bit unimpressive most of the time, uh, like understated, but not necessarily in a good way. And here it kind of plays into that menace and that unpredictability a little bit more just from Andrew Scott's general demeanor also i really like that his demons voiced by um phoebe Waller-Bridge, who is the writer and the star of fleabag which andrew scott also appeared in mm. and pretty much got famous from that and being moriarty huh. that was the best decision they ever made 
Yes. <laughs> maybe not. 100%. Maybe that was a bit over the top saying that, but Phoebe Waller-Bridge is his demon. So smart. It works so well because you're used to hearing their voices together. Yeah. I'm going to have to go back and rewatch that scene because I did not notice that, but I love Fleabag, so. Ta-da. Um, Do we want to fight each other to go first with least favorite part or actually I'll win? Um, another unneeded prologue full <laughs> of information we get elsewhere that is poorly acted and weirdly shot and dumb and we didn't need it. And I hated it. And also, yeah. no, they didn't call it the subtle knife. Nobody ever fucking calls it the subtle knife. <laughs> That's the stupidest name. Why do you have to say it five million times in this episode? <laughs> like, you want to sh- <laughs> Easter egg the name of the book. I get it. But no, that's not its... You know, <sighs> I hated the opening. I agree. And particularly because the previous episode also started with like a witch narrated cold open and so doing basically the same kind of thing two episodes in a row felt kind of cheap to me i mean and i know they they weren't exactly the same thing because episode three it was the witches talking about um like how they were going to get revenge for the bombing and it was like the destruction from the bombing and this it was more exposition but it still had like kind of the same vibe and yeah i it just i i was had like a unpleasant deja vu feeling the whole prologue and like the first episode opened with a prologue with a voiceover so that's three of four episodes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah they should yeah. trust trust the audience more yeah um and like f- find some way to do it where it's like not not quite so predictable and cliche or like, you know, just have that be the formula. Like if you just do this every time, then it'd be like, well, I guess that's how the episode opened. And if you don't like it, I mean, you don't like it, but it's like every once in a while it does it. And it's like, why, why, why stop it? Don't do that. (laughs) But don't make it the formula. It's bad. No, I agree. But like, (laughs) but is it the formula? Is it not the formula? Is like, we got one foot in, stop doing the hokey pokey. Just, we don't need it. Yeah, I agree. That's not what my problem was, though, this episode. I <laughs> I love Boreal so much, and all I will do is complain about him this season because what are they doing to my Lord Boreal? I feel like in the first season, he had like a storyline that made a lot of sense to me. Um, I was very intrigued by like the way he was using his power and stuff. And this season, his motivations are becoming more and more unclear to me. I don't understand what his goals are or what... He's doing like he's in the first season, he gets to the college and he's like, Grumman's head is not Grumman's head. The I'm, you know, here on behalf of the magisterium. I think you guys have been lied to or you're lying to me. And I'm going to track down Asriel because he's a fugitive from, you know, our system. And Grumman is the key to doing that. And so like he follows his breadcrumbs and it's great because he has a goal and everything. But now it's like, okay, he's been told by the alethiometer that Will is the most important person in that, you know, trail that he followed. And he again and again has Will in his clutches and he's like, go get the knife, little boy. And I'm like, why? What do you want this knife for? Because like for your collection of stuff, why are you like trying to seduce Mrs. Coulter? Like, 
I mean, I get it, I guess, but like, is that a part of your plan or are you just like, he doesn't seem to have a thing anymore. He just is like all over the place. He doesn't, I don't feel like he's motivated. I don't understand what he's doing. Okay. Mm. So I do agree that my read of Boreal's motivations changed in this episode, but for me, it was more of a shift rather than being confused about it. I think up until this point, I've thought that he was just manipulating Mrs. Coulter as a rival to try and like accomplish his own goals. And in this episode, it does feel like he's actually infatuated with her and that um, she is a bigger part of his motivations than we previously thought. I didn't see that as necessarily a bad thing. Um, but I'm interested to wait and see exactly where this goes and how the show plays it. I can Is the knife a part of the way to get her? Like, it doesn't... The I way to get her is Lyra. And he had Lyra, and the alethiometer was like, Will is the most important. And then he's like, both of you leave the ends to my means. To get me a thing that I don't need for anything. Well, the knife so, like, is why? power, right? It. But that, yeah, is that power. what's motivating him? Because you just said that Mrs. Coulter is what motivating him. And previously, the alethiometer said Will is what should be motivating you and has been motivating him for the entire season. And now all of a sudden he's like, no, it was the knife. And I'm like, whoa, I can't keep up with the moving target that is Boreal's motivations. I think you're I'd thinking of him. Pr- Incorrectly. I'd say his proximate motivation is that he wants the knife, but his ultimate motivation is, like nearly all of them, he wants power. And I I feel that that is consistent throughout. You know, he doesn't want Mrs. Coulter for Mrs. Coulter. He wants Mrs. Coulter for power. He wants Lyra for power. He wants the knife for power. He wants the alethiometer for power. He's just a greedy man. Also, I think that there's a really good line in this episode where he mentions Asriel and he says, you know, Asriel always has to be first. And he mm. sounds not jealous, but like, like really like, fuck that man. Mm-hmm. You know? And so I think, sorry, I don't remember season one very well, which is my own fault. <laughs> I should have rewatched. Um, did he, was Was it clear that he thought... Grumman and this man that he was looking for in our world was the same person. Yeah, it becomes once he sees a a picture, he's like, oh, I know who this I know what's going on. Okay, because I didn't think of it that way in season one. I thought he was just saying, yeah, we're going to look for Grumman just because the Magisterium doesn't know that he's traveling between worlds. Oh, well, he yeah, I mean, he is looking for Grumman. And he goes to the other world to do that because he has a hunch about something. But then once he sees pictures of of Perry, then he's like, whoa, this is this is the same person. I didn't realize. OK, but you could still argue that what he actually wants when he because he was already looking into Perry before that. Mm. So you could say what he actually wants is more information about the windows because he probably had some sort of inkling that that's what had happened to Perry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and that's mm-hmm. also why he wants the knife so he can travel because the knife doesn't just open remember it keeps the specters 
off. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So adults want the knife so that they can travel around the world of Chitagatze easily. Good. I like this. This is good. Keep going. This is good. <laughs> right? So that's <laughs> what I always thought he wanted was okay. to travel and discover the worlds and use that as some sort of power. I don't know what, but yeah, power. Yeah, yeah. He I did it before think, Azrael. Maybe he wants yeah. the knife because he thinks that he will be able to wield the knife and cut his own windows to get whatever he wants. Sure, yeah. Maybe. Because not much My, is probably, no- well, according to the books, not much is known about the knife outside of the guild. According to the prologue in this episode, that's <laughs> everybody fucking knows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a bit uh, non-continuous there. It's. I, I just think... All the people in the Magisterium who are actually clever don't believe in the Magisterium. They are in it for their own gain. Mm-hmm. I see that as fairly consistent throughout a lot of the... I mean, partially because this is a slightly Father cynical McPhail view. slander. Jesus. <laughs> kind of my point. <laughs> like, Coulter <laughs> is not in this because she's a devout magisterium advocate she's not a zealot um and in the same manner i don't think boreal is particularly a zealot i think he's very much of mrs Coulter's ilk in that he wants to do things and this is the best vehicle for that asriel is the same except asriel just actively rejects it and says i don't think that the magisterium is the best vehicle for my ambitions but they none of them are there to make the to venerate the authority not really right yeah whilst some of the like uh again i think we mentioned father gomez previously and we'll come back to him anon but like some of these underlings in general are they they are massively dogmatic they are very tied up in how the magisterium works and the uh, dogma behind it and i feel that that's partially Philip Pullman making a criticism of the Catholic Church. He's saying that mm-hmm. if you're following the dogma without having an ulterior motive, you're stupid. And if you're following it with having an ulterior motive, then you're disingenuous. You have no integrity, yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's a bad organization. I mean, I get what you're what you guys are saying, that he has like wider goals than what I'm saying. I guess I just when I'm thinking about writing craft and like how you calibrate characters and stuff like that, and I love Boreal so much. I feel like his motivations were keener and and clearer for me to understand. And this episode especially, I just felt really muddied my understanding of what he specifically wants, you know, right now. Um, but I, I do take your point in the wider sense of like, I, if it, if it was kind of what you're saying, if like, if he had Lyra and will in his hand and then there was some sense or moment or line that was like, but I could have more, I could have the knife, you know, or something like that. Like he's tempted by the power, then I would be into it. And I, I wish that there was something like that. But I, it he was just, just muddy for me. He just hunches over a ring from his collection and whispers, <laughs> I could have more. Yeah, that would be bad. Don't do that. But something like that but, would be good. Yeah, no, and I, I take your point that there's a difference here between the law and the writing itself, in that I agree with you to an extent that it's unclear directly in the writing, but it is... Uh, pretty like 
like you've got to think about it and you can come up with good ways to explain that but part of the question is should we have to yeah i i think caitlin did a great job of like laying out across the seasons that was really good but how he operates so my least favorite part was where the fight in the tower was good don't get me wrong i liked it it worked it was again not bad but in the book, firstly, it happened on the rooftop rather than in a floor of the tower, which made it scarier. Secondly, um, Tulio in this adaptation felt less menacing. Like, he felt desperate, yeah. but he didn't feel like rabbit in, a ma- in the manner that he does in the book. Yeah, in the book, he feels almost like psychotic in a way. Yeah. Or yeah, like deranged. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. And here he feels relatively compass mentis. Um, but that and that that's a problem in a manner. It makes him less of an obviously, again, a natural evil and much more of you, you almost want to know more about him. <laughs> you don't really get any of that. Um I also felt that it would have been more impactful if Will had not realized that his fingers had come off until afterwards, because that's Mm. what happens in the books. And, you know, the the whole idea is the knife is so sharp that you you wouldn't feel it. It's just gone. Like the nerves have just stopped firing because there are no fingers anymore. And instead he, he like he reacts to it. He winces in pain. It's really well acted. Don't get me wrong. But I from as a creative decision, I don't like it as much as just have it so he doesn't realize and then his fingers just slowly fall off the stumps and they're gone and like that really reinforces almost immediately just how sharp this knife is because it's the sharpest thing ever and they show it they show that lovely shot of it um just sticking in the ground Uh, but also it should have gone to the hilt what the fuck i yeah i didn't notice that (laughs) and it and it was meant to be through lead like obviously lead is relatively soft as a material but you don't drop a knife and it goes all the way through lead in the same way it probably shouldn't go all the way through stone like but it just there were small bits which i felt could have been done better in the same amount of time with the same budget so that's why i kind of slightly disagree with it as a adaptation okay if we can go back to tulio for a second though i want to to play devil's advocate here a little bit I do agree that having him be less menacing is, like, less exciting and interesting on some level, but I think it does interesting things for Will's character. Like, having him be more just pathetic and desperate, I think, explains why Will was kind of reluctant to to fight him as much at first. I think it gives him maybe like it, it maybe makes Will feel more remorse or maybe the audience feel more pity for him by proxy. Like it's less of like, Oh, that evil person got what they deserved and more like, wow, that sucks. I, I don't know. I felt I empathized much more with Tulio in this version than I did in the book because it was kind of like, yeah, "Yeah, like, I can see why he did what he did. Maybe I would do that too if you knew you were going to hit puberty and the specters were going to come after you and you thought the knife would protect you. Like, I might try and go get the knife myself too. 
it's I mean it's a different choice and um I didn't hate it. I'm not saying you have to like I, it, but I it worked no, for me. And and I get that. Like I I completely agree that it's a different choice. It's not objectively worse. It's just taking it in a slightly different direction. That actually does bring up very quickly a question I had, I think, in my notes from the first episode, maybe the second, which was, where in puberty do you have to be before the specters <laughs> come after you? Because Will's voice is broken. And this I would like contend that Tulio is significantly older. We need to do like <laughs> yeah. experiments with demons on children and be like, okay, is it going to get them now? No, we'll check tomorrow. We'll <laughs> so check them- I, like I have theories about this. Of and course. A... <laughs> you have to keep in mind that they had to cast them older. So, like, yes. their ages in the show are not what they were in the book, right? They no, were, like, and 12 and 13 in the book. So, keep that in mind. But I always thought that it wasn't a physical thing, but a mental thing. So, like, a kid who's younger but has been through more and been forced to grow up might see them earlier. Mm, and and their demon you. might settle earlier and that sort of thing. Like, I swear to God we meet someone in... This, the prequel with the canoe, whatever that one's called, who's like 16 yep. and her demon hasn't settled. La Belle Sauvage. Yeah, you're yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah. sparkly so, canoe? Is that yeah. the name of the book? <laughs> <laughs> so it's just different for everyone, right? But then, yeah, and okay. So that I would say when your demon settles around that time is when you start seeing uh, specters. It's the, same, it's the same thing that they're studying, right? It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so it would be slightly different for everyone, just like within a bracket. And also yeah. different time periods, because puberty used to happen a lot later. Or, But, but that might have just been lifestyle choices. Well, not choices, forced on you. And You know what I mean? Do you mean earlier? Yeah, whatever. Just I move on. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I feel <laughs> oh, like uh, they gave people adult responsibilities sooner but i think hormonally um at yeah. least like menarche is that what it's called um like the onset oh. of menstruation is happening earlier than it used to okay. and they think it has something to do with like just more exposure to um estrogens like, and like estrogen yeah. mimicking compound like synthetic compounds in the environment okay but this is not an environmental toxicity podcast so we can just move but, on and, and and also they uh they think partially it's to do with nutrition oh right. yeah um, i was gonna say because like somebody working a farm every day of their life and like and that or somebody poor might have it happen later than right. uh somebody rich so i don't know why i was trying to say that some, some differently <laughs> Jesus. No. Okay. I think you're right Agreed. though that it's not it's not about the biology necessarily. Yeah, right? no, it's, it's yeah, yeah. It's experience. But I'm a biologist. I want it to be about biology. I know. What else <laughs> is well, it about? Well, then you can join me on my dust slash demon <laughs> research center and we can perform morally acceptable experiments on children. <laughs> oh, okay. I'll, I'll 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 get together sourcing the um the very very sharp blades and then you build the cages. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think we should do it somewhere cold. I'm feeling a little bit, a bit of snow. It'd be nice. I like snow. Uh, I did actually see a video of um, Svalbard the other day, and the uh, the Northern Lights looked very nice. That sounds good. That sounds good. Yeah. I know that's not where the station was. Moving on. Problematics. 
Problematics. I so Grumman reminded me in this episode the way that they have chosen to do his character. This, this is tricky, right? We talked about Grumman quite a bit when we covered the book, um, and the problematics that were associated with him. And so I think they went in a direction here that is more Alistair Crowley than like um, white man joins the native tribe, becomes shaman kind of a thing. What is Alistair or sorry, who is Alistair Crowley? Yeah. So Alistair. Interesting. Yeah. Right. (laughs) I thought everybody knew that guy. You never know. Right. But it's a good question. So Alistair Crowley is uh, a kind of really like the father of like, modern occultism in some ways. Uh, He's like the late 1800s spiritualist who writes a a lot of books uh, along with some women that he lived with who were also occultists and laid down like a lot of what we consider to be like witchcraft nowadays. But his method of doing it, he came up with this thing called chaos magic, which is about like ritual you know, magical invocations and stuff like that. And the reason that he called it chaos is because it um, doesn't care about the history of the practitioner that it's associated with. So like if it gets results, it doesn't matter if you're invoking an Egyptian God, an Incan God, uh, you know, like um, some kind of like Irish fairy or uh, a Hindu God. It's just about like, so it's not associated with any kind of, actual religious tradition it's just associated with like results it's a kind of practical magic really like the kind of thing that is talked about in the voiceover right that the philosophers of who created the subtle knife didn't really care about like they're not worshiping the authority like the magisterium right they're just like looking for like results and they're doing it through supernatural what we would consider supernatural techniques that was Alistair Crowley's whole thing. But to me, that's like a religion about cultural appropriation. (laughs) Yeah. It basically is appropriation as religion. As a religion. Yeah. And so I was like, oh man, you like, you did not do the problematic thing in the book, but now you've done a different thing. It's not as bad as Crowley. Like, I want to be clear, like, and maybe we'll see more of Grumman and it's But that was the vibe that I got from it. And I'll talk about more some of the icons that I noticed on his person that made me think this. But it was like, huh, that's I should mention that Aleister Crowley is problematic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes, he is. I'm glad you brought that up because I mostly was thinking about how they actually avoided something kind of problematic from the book. Right. Mm -hmm. Because in... um, in the book, it definitely has more of a, like, heart of darkness kind of feel where, like, he gets on the boat and then he goes up the river and then he has to, like, oh, deal true. with all of these indigenous natives to try to find the guy that he's looking for. Um, and so by by having Grumman's demon find him and lead him back to where Grumman is, it kind of avoided having to like cast and write um the like indigenous people and falling into problematic tropes that way Mm, good point so i think that was good having having the demon um be the 
the thing that leads Lee to Grumen. It also gives like some kind of um, implication since we learned in the previous episode about having a separation between human and demon being associated with like a ritual that like maybe Grumen has gone through this ritual and you know like as far as we know only witches female witches can do that right mm-hmm. but that his osprey is very far from him uh which seems to be like a thing that no one else can do that we've seen who is a man yeah so, i really love that bit because it yeah. does the thing that i'm always criticizing the show for not doing in that it very seamlessly points out a thing about demons without fucking pointing it out you yeah. know what i mean yeah. when lee says are you a witch's demon you yeah, get that it's exactly. far away and that, that that's wrong for anybody who's not a witch. Like, that bit was well done. I don't understand why they can't do that type of thing. <laughs> just With all the other demon information that they just have a character vomit out their mouth. That would be nice. We're going to talk about that later. Yeah. Yeah. The only other problematic thing that I saw, and this might just me be, be me looking for problematic things in something that was a little problematic in the book anyway. Um, I felt his jacket was kind of, again, riffing on uh, Native American shamanism a little bit. Yeah, it definitely had, uh, has like specifically a North American uh, indigenous motif on it. Yeah, that's what it felt like. And that felt slightly lazy. Just give him a leather jacket or like his old explorer jacket. He literally, yeah, yeah, because he puts another jacket on over it later that is like more a jacket from our world, it looks like almost. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's weird. But then he like has this elaborate hood that on that other native jacket that has like, you know, like a hawk's head on it and stuff. And I was like, wow. I do like the the hood. It looked cool, but it was like, there's a lot of stuff going on here with the symbols that they're using. For me, it was less that I thought the jacket was lazy, and it was more that I felt like it was confusing in terms of world building, because, I mean, I guess we know that Lee is from Texas, and the ring itself um, that his mom had, Yeah. well, I think... In the book, it was turquoise. It was hard for me to tell in the TV show if it was actually turquoise. I don't think it was. But we don't get that much. um, We get very little about what's going on in the new world. Like, it's the whole, all of, everything is pretty much oriented around the, oh God, that was a horrible, unintentional pun. Um, Oriented around the <laughs> the old world, um, you know, like there's references to Africa, Asia, and Europe, and that's pretty much all we get, other than Lee being from Texas. So it's the most American sentence you've ever seen. It's not about <laughs> us. <laughs> what the fuck? No, I'm Sorry, not mad about that. Realistic. I don't understand. I'm not mad about that. It's just like. No, I'm saying it should be less about us. I'm saying that, like, given <laughs> how little America factors into it, it's weird to see an explicitly Native American visual design. Yeah. Mm. I w- okay, okay. Here's a thought. I mean, no, it's pro. I, I'd like to say that it's super fucking problematic in the show, 
before I say what I'm about to say, trying that's going to sound like I'm trying to excuse them. I'm not doing that. I'm just being an ass. It's possible that outside of um, Southern Texas. America slash like Mexico, Texas area, maybe they left the indigenous nations alone yeah. and maybe their back. culture has spread out. Maybe. Maybe if all their demons are giant buffalo, they were like, people showed up with like house cats and they were like, we fucked you up. We win. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I had a minor ask a Brit question, um, which is actually not quite related to this episode um, of the TV show, but I was listening to our book podcast episodes just kind of to refresh myself on what we had thought about the book. And I was reminded that in the book, Boreal, or not Boreal, but Charles Latram, um, that persona of Boreal is actually a knight. And so we talked about that a little bit last um, episode, just in terms of the contrast between old money and new money, like the Rolls Royce versus the Tesla. But the fact that, I mean, I think making him not a knight in this episode or I don't know, I guess I just had some confusion about like what the title Sir actually means. Like, is that for a Lord or for a Knight or for both? Is it a hereditary title or an earned title? Um, I'm glad they didn't open that whole can of worms in the TV show, but it made me wonder about the book. Like, how hard is it to get knighted? Like, it feels like it would be really difficult for... um, someone to come from another world as a like complete outsider and somehow manage to get themselves ingratiated into the aristocracy in such a way that they could get knighted like does that mean he had to be friends with the queen i don't i don't know how any of this works right so um i did a little bit of reading about this and um so knighthoods and lords are separate um, I think you can be both, um, but we'll talk about knighthoods first. So okay. they sort of fall into two major categories in terms of British knighthoods. Um, you can become a knight either by being appointed to one of the orders of chivalry at a particular rank. So in the order of the British Empire, that would be at the rank of um, knight commander or um, general knight, I think, or something like that as the top one. Um those come with a knighthood attached. If you are in one of the lower categories, like OBE, that would be Officer of the British Empire, or CBE, Commander, or MBE, Member, um, you do not inherently get to use the title Sir, which is reserved for knights and peers. However, if you are made an OBE, for instance then often you will also be knighted as a knight bachelor. Now, a knight bachelor can be granted on its own. Um, So you can be a knight bachelor and not a member of an order of chivalry. Um, And if if you're in that case, you still get to use the title sir, uh, but you're just not a member of the order of chivalry. But you can also technically end up being a member of the order of the Shiv- order of chivalry one of the orders of chivalry and not be able to use the title sir that comes with being a knight <laughs> bachelor or a high enough member these titles are not hereditary they get granted to a single person for various reasons 
Um, usually it's the crown that um, gets to decide that, except in very certain circumstances. And it is entirely at their, their discretion, though there is a certain amount of um, expectation that recommendations from high up people in society would be considered, such as recommendations from the prime minister. Um, another way that he could be sir would be if he was granted something like a baronetcy. That would enable him to use the title sir, and that would be a hereditary title. However, a baronetcy hasn't been granted since 1964 in the UK, uh, except for once, which was for the husband of Margaret Thatcher. That was granted in the 1990s. <laughs> um, generally, it's not granted anymore, um, except possibly to members of the royal family. Um, no idea really how he got the title, sir. You can't really say without having a bit more knowledge about him, which we just don't get. However, given that he has it, assuming he's using it legally, uh, he probably wormed his way through the sort of upper echelons of society, did some work with national security or spying or defence, plenty of, you know, bribing, manipulation and a bit of, you know, recommendation. I would have expected him actually to be Lord rather than Sir. Uh, I'll come to that in a second. Um, alternatively, he's using it illegally, but it either way, it's a bit unrealistic that he'd have the title Sir unless he's been there for a long time. So it it does feel a little bit like unfairly misleading the reader to give him the title Sir when it's... I, I feel like it's almost throwing us off the track of him being Lord Boreal in the book when like we wouldn't yeah. think that anyway. Mm-hmm. Can I, I think can I throw out that sure. maybe he was trying to mislead Lyra, who had seen him and spoken to him before? Okay, that's fair. Yeah, maybe he was that's misleading Lyra and not in the, actually in the book, not, yeah, yeah. not the TV show. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that's. I mean, if we want to get into the semantics of it, he saw a dirty girl on the side of the road and was like, "Yeah, I'm Sir Charles Latrum." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, like. It is very unusual that you find someone using that title who is not that, and certainly not someone who is relatively well-born, if you will. Someone who seems like a... <laughs> it's, it's strange. So you get you get some people who will claim it via various slightly odd means, uh, like changing your name to Sir. That's something that you can do. Um, <laughs> but that causes slight problems. Um it's complicated. In general, it, if you if someone introduced themselves as Sir, then you'd probably ask, you know, if you didn't know of them at all, you'd probably be like, oh, yeah, you know, what um, what's that for? Maybe, um, but usually you'd assume that they were in fact telling the truth, because it's just it, it's weird. It's just not something that's done. Tend to try and pull that off. I think there are probably some pretty nasty charges if you actually get caught doing it. Um, it's just that no one ever does it, so it's not worth. It's not. It doesn't get tested regularly. You get flogged um, by the queen but... or something. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot more people would do it then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm. I'm sure it would be something like serious fines. Um, well, I mean, you, you you get that. I I wonder if it's tied up in the same things that stop you using um, postnomial letters you haven't earned and oh, things like yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you were putting yourself off as an FRS and you're not an FRS, that might cause problems. I don't know, it's just not something that's really done here, which is, now I think about it, slightly interesting. Um, just a final little point of interest. Peerages, which are the other way to become Sir, such as if you're a Duke, an Earl, a Baron, or a Lord, 
are not honours under the crown. And that is a slightly technical term or slightly arcane technical term. Um, but what this interestingly means is that the whilst they are granted nominally by the power of the crown, they're not actually controlled by the crown and so they can't be withdrawn by the crown. Only parliament can withdraw you being a lord or a duke or an earl. So this actually has meant that some lords who have been jailed for crimes, uh, such as Lord Archer, um, can come back to the House of Lords when they've done their prison time. Um, Lord Archer himself only chooses to exert his dining rights rather than actually coming in and doing the voting stuff. But without an act of parliament, he's still a lord. The, The crown can't take that away, whilst they can for knights. Okay, so, um, so, so yeah, but interesting. just to be s- super clear, so the title Sir can mean both of those things. You can be either a knight or have a peerage title, and both of those are I think you, called Sir. You, If you had the title of Sir and you also had the title of Earl, you introduce yourself as Earl. You are oh, introduced I see. As That's Earl, right. Because it would be disrespectful to not introduce you as your highest title. I see. Okay, that's right. Okay. So, yeah. Um, and I don't know if every lord is per se a sir. I think they probably are. Well, if they're a man, because this yeah. shit is horribly, horribly gendered, but we'll ignore that. Um, I was wondering that as you're saying all this. I was like, what if you're... So do they make knights of women? Uh, I think they become so a dame no. because of Dame Judi Dench, right? Precisely. Oh. Yes, you become a dame, not a knight. So... So that's not. So she's literally a knight. That's what that means. I didn't no, know that. She's not a knight. She's a dame. Oh, she's okay. But the dame is the lady. Which knight. is the same rank. Is the is the sir? Yeah. Is the well, yeah. Okay. Nominally, okay, is, okay. it actually gets a bit confusing. The lowest rank with a title that you can be as a woman is higher than the lowest rank you can be with that type with that sort of title as a man. Which is interesting. So if someone has dame, then they're actually often going to be a higher rank than someone who has sir. So like Sir Ian McKellen, for instance, he is a CBE, I want to say. And he is also a knight bachelor, which is why he can use the term sir. But if if you're a dame, then I don't think you can be a knight bachelor at all. So I think you have to be a higher level, possibly a um, knight commander or equivalent dame commander and then it gets even more complicated because you get um companions who are members of some of the orders of chivalry but are not sirs and they are lower than members sometimes in some of them (laughs) which is what happened with thatchers yeah so what you're saying is that ian mckellen is a crown confirmed bachelor but <laughs> sorry okay i had yes. to make that joke yes i am <laughs> a, and a good one it was as well right okay just one more thing please so your house of lords does that mean anybody who has the title of earl or baron or duke or whatever can just show up to the house of lords and be like i'm voting bitches and uh, no okay you have to <laughs> be like invited or something no, so there are sitting members of the there are sitting lords and there are lords who are not members of the House of Lords. Okay. Um traditionally all life peers were made members of the House of Lords, but that is no longer the case. And uh, I think yeah, basically it all got really confusing. They did some reforms and as part of those reforms some things got even more complicated than they already were. So like you had the law lords and the um 
what are they called? Basically, like the archbishops and stuff. They used to get lordships as default, and now I think they don't by default. Um, and also, not all, as I said, not all life peers are entitled to sit in the li- in the House of Lords, though they are all entitled to use the House of Lords um, dining, <laughs> so, which is apparently a very very nice place to eat. That's insane. Do you, I, it's like hard for me to believe that, like, I kind of understand having a monarchy, but having a house of lords just makes no sense. Really? Really? Because it's exactly the same over here. If you're rich, (laughs) then you get to go to the best colleges and then you get to be in charge of everyone. Yeah, but that's, that's informal. That's not like your actual government is. Yeah. I don't yeah, know. they definitely it's... haven't rigged the rules to make it that way over here in exactly <laughs> the same way at all. It's also very interesting Poor people because people get to go up there all the time. It happens all the time. They become senators. And anyway, it's exactly so there... fucking the same. <laughs> <laughs> there are interesting arguments about the House of Lords um, because obviously it's an unelected uh, house. However, there are also problems with the elected houses, House of Parliament or the um, House of Commons in that the people in the House of Commons, I think there's one person with a PhD. Mm-hmm. There was the people who are in the House of Commons are professional politicians. And that is not so true for the House of Lords. Um, this doesn't necessarily excuse it. I'm, I've been back and forth on the issue for many years, but you could end up with... Uh, House of Commons who passes things which, if you look at it with 10, you know, I don't know, not 10, but like 40 or 50 years experience in, oh, I don't know, biology, then you look at it and you go, that's fucking absurd. No, <laughs> absolutely not. No, this is this is, this is is unreasonable. And that is nominally one of the benefits of the House of Lords, though, again, complicated because some people get elected to the House of Lords or get assigned, um, whatever it's called. Uh, appointed to the House of Lords by recommendation from the current head of the political party that is in charge of the Commons, which you can see might cause some problems. Okay. And then nah, there's also it hasn't scandals. caused any problems over here when you do that kind of stuff. <laughs> no, never. So yeah, interesting delving into the way that British politics and British titles and all that works is a massive, massive thing to do, but it's so much, so interesting. It's really fun. Okay. Just a well, little bit arcane and archaic. Yeah, thank you for humoring me. Maybe we'll have a follow-up <laughs> podcast, which is just Ask a Bread. <laughs> <laughs> Very tempting. Okay, religion? Yeah, so we talked a little bit about uh, Grumman and uh, a lot of the symbols that are on his body, including I had here in my notes that I wasn't sure about the coat that he was wearing. It looked kind of Native American to me in its influence in Anya noticed that and uh, and Francis. So I guess you guys agree with that. I wasn't sure. I, I'm not as familiar with like Native American magical rituals as I am other stuff. And so I didn't know if those lines meant anything specifically or if, you know, they're related to any kind of Native American medicine and, and things like that. So I didn't specifically have those in my notes, but I did like Notice that too. I saw that he has a ring with the Triforce on it. That's great. Just repping Zelda there. But actually that he has like a little ring. It has like three triangles, which forms a third inverted triangle in the middle. And that um, 
is like associated with alchemy. You can orient a different triangle in like different ways. And it represents like earth, air, fire, water, um, ether, and things like that, that help you to manipulate all of the elements of the world and kind of produce the effects that you want in, in other words, magic. Right. And so that's what I took the triangle ring to be about and not a reference to a, a Nintendo game. Um, I like that he has the trepanning scar on his head. I really appreciated the um, yes. the makeup. Yeah, that was going on it there. Was very well done. Yeah, I cool. do enjoy that they felt the need to put it right where everyone could see it. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I always imagined it kind of in the back of his head, and maybe like you know, like his hair's grown over it or something. Yeah. But no, it was on Front Street, right? That's that's a choice, I guess. But we talked about trepanning in the book, and you know that's a, a ritual that's done to um, let the spiritual energy in. They talk about that in the show. So uh, we, what you see here is that we're mixing lots of different. Like we have European alchemy here, we have Native American, we have um, the you know the culture of the steppe people with the trepanning. We also have on his hand, I noticed this, we get a close-up of his hand while he's manipulating the weather and um, getting the wind to blow for the for the um, air balloon. He has an eye of Horus on, his, uh, on the backside of his hand, and uh, it's kind of wreathed in uh, a ring of fire or like a sun, which makes sense because the eye of Horus, you know, one eye is the sun and the other eye is the moon. Um, Horus controls the weather and the sky in Egyptian mythology. He's kind of the son of the creator God and like inherits all of his power and abilities. And so you've got like, that's really what led me to the Aleister Crowley stuff because Aleister Crowley was very into Egyptology. Um, and, you know, but weren't you think we about, all really? <laughs> oh yeah. But I, I think you can really lay that at Aleister Crowley's feet from you know, that was when Great Britain was in Egypt, the late 1800s, World War One, World War Two. And they were like infusing all of English speaking culture with like knowledge about ancient Egypt, which is super interesting. And yeah, I'm, I've definitely uh, been way into Egyptology stuff. I love Stargate just like everyone else. <laughs> yeah, but but the the eye of Horus on his hand was was where I was like. Oh, we're doing an Aleister Crowley thing here where we're mixing together like Native American stuff, uh, European alchemy, Egyptology, and it's all just kind of like the trepanning. It's all just like a magical stew of like whatever gets the job done because he had this motivation that he tells Lee of like, I need to get back to my family. But in like trying to do that, he discovers that there's this larger uh, kind of plot evolving over the different universes that involves Lord Asriel and the witches and the prophecy and dust and all the stuff that, you know, he's been caught up in this just like Lyra and Will and everybody. And so he's like using whatever means are at his disposal to like do his part. He's kind of lost his quest of getting back to his family um, to blow a balloon around in the sky. But I think the, these are like, so there's self-conscious decisions in the show, and I think they're kind of interesting the way that they're bringing them into this wizard. Like this is what the show's concept of a of a magic user is: is somebody who will use 
well, any kind one. of power. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly, right? Because the witches are like totally different, right? They seem to be like symbiotically connected to nature, like literally, and are using like a very different force that's connected to their world and to themselves and maybe has something to do with dust in the way that they dissolve and reform. And so like Grumman's whole thing is like very weird to me when you compare it to that and and is like a lot of references to different cultures from our world. That might make sense for his character. Mm-hmm. Because he's from our world. What? That is a spoiler. <laughs> um, and then insert the it's... whole argument we had. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Stay after the credits for that argument, I guess. <laughs> for another 20 minutes of <laughs> shouting. But I-, I can see, especially, well, we've moved the story up to modern time. But let's say if this did take place in the 90s, as it did in the books... I could see where definitely somebody of his time period would be like, wait, I know the magic symbols I must use. Draws an eye of horse, you know? Like, that makes 100% sense to me character-wise. I've read Neil Gaiman books. I yeah. I know what to do. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is kind of actually the age of his character is like, he's probably around the same age I am. Um, so he... It's still problematic. Understand. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, okay, okay. But, you know, you get power from wherever you get power. It just doesn't really matter. I don't. And I think that's I think his character is like genuinely interested in learning things, which is is a contrast to like the magisterium who is like, if it contradicts our doctrine, then it's unknowable because it's not real. And he's like, I'll take whatever you got. Right. Mm -hmm. And there is something that I respect about that. Like I have studied like a lot of different religions around the world. I don't feel embarrassed about it as like a white guy from America it's not it's not like I'm trying to steal this like it's genuinely interesting to me and I'm not trying to like appropriate culture like my own personal religion is Taoism which is like an ancient Chinese religion and I do feel kind of guilty about that a little bit but like but also it enormously helps my mental health and like and it I actually do sincerely believe it to be true um, when I read it and think about it and stuff like that. And so I don't know, like it's all kind of human truth on a certain level. But, you know, at the same time, like you can't just be like, this is mine now. And I understand it completely in the context of my own culture, because like that's fucked up and wrong and bad. So as long as you're being careful about the way that you learn things, I think if you're willing to learn it in its own context and be humble and be honest about how ignorant you are and your biases, then I think that you can learn about other cultures successfully and like integrate their wisdom into your experience. And I think Grumman is doing that on some level, but it is definitely problematic in its portrayal because we're not getting enough time with him. Um... So while we're talking about Jopari, Jopari, I mm-hmm. can't even remember um, how they said it. I Grumman. Grumman, yes, they Grumman. Didn't, better. They, they didn't say John Perry. That's what they didn't yeah, say. Yeah, they definitely did not say John Perry. No relation. Oh my God, it's John Perry. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> In the book, does it explicitly say that the reason why he became a shaman was to try and get back to his world um, for Will and his wife. 
because I really liked the way they drew that connection in this episode. And it felt new to me, but I couldn't tell if that was just because I forgot or um, if it that was actually uh, something that the show came up with. You know, it's definitely something that I've always thought, but I don't remember if I just drew my own conclusions or if the book did say it. I, I don't remember. Yeah, I don't know either. It felt, it did feel new to me too. And it felt somewhat connected to Mrs. Coulter and to Lee's personal motivation to get to like help Lyra right Mm -hmm. like like I don't know if it's true necessarily like because it's what like Lee hears it and he's like yeah me too I now I understand and I trust you so like maybe that was his game there but um but it seemed he seems sincere not I don't know like now Caitlin has me to where I'm like we shouldn't trust what the characters say they're all liars (laughs) um so like now I'm suspicious. Ah, my philosophy on life. No. <laughs> I thought it was sincere and I definitely believed it. And I in general, I think the show is really intentionally drawing parallels between different characters. Yeah. In a way that the book either didn't do it or just did it much more subtly. Yeah. Um so I've really liked that throughout and I think this is another example of that, of um, drawing, trying to draw the parallels between John Perry and Will and Mrs. Coulter and Lyra um, and Lee and Lyra and all of that. I agree. Um, so that is everything that I noticed with Grumman, all the religious stuff around him, which is interesting and to me and had to do with magic um, in our world. The big thing that I noticed, I already said before, was Metatron's cube uh, that shows up in the end of the episode with the cave where she's talking to the computer and it is like psychedelically poking out of the screen and talking back. And uh, it makes this weird symbol on the screen that looks like a bunch of circles and kind of like uh, a bunch of triangles and lines and a hexagon or something. And that is called Metatron's Cube. It is a real symbol in our world, Will's world, the real world, that is something called sacred geometry. Um, So if you've ever seen like people doing like satanic rituals or something, they draw like or like witchcraft, quote unquote, where they will like draw a circle and then make a pentagram or something like that. That is or like a summoning circle, things like that. Um, or like Caitlin mentioned anime, there's like full metal alchemist where they draw like chalk circles with symbols in them. That is sacred geometry. That is like the idea that the universe is built on mathematical principles. And therefore, if you manipulate mathematical principles on a low level in a, in a circle, you know, of geometry, and then kind of concentrate your will into it the way that the subtle knife works or the alethiometer works, that your mental interaction with this mathematical model will result in a supernatural connection to the essence of the universe and allow you to supernaturally do stuff like, I don't know, like blow a hot air balloon around or something. And so like Mary Malone seems to have like a supernatural revelation of the fundamental nature of the universe in terms of dark matter 
through Metatron's cube talking to her and being like, yeah, we're angels. And we like have messed with your evolution because we're interested in you people. And she's like, whoa, crazy, man. That um, scene was so good. It's great. She acted that that revelation with the angels so well because you could see on her face that she was like, I'm a fucking scientist. <laughs> like you could see it on her face that she was just like, angels? I can't I... publish this. <laughs> I got out of the whole church thing. It and was they, really I, good. Sorry. I did love that they, they totally great. did evidently. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was so good. Uh the, I watched the episode twice and in my head that was where they ended it after the first time I watched it. So when the conversation oh, kept going on right, just ended it on evidently and lack could have been the uh the cliffhanger that they gave us. Oh, so, so good. good. <laughs> but then I went back and I was like, oh no, there's more in this scene and a whole other scene that I'd forgotten about. <laughs> Well, this symbol is interesting to me in like a lot of ways because it becomes important, and we'll talk about this more when we cover the third book, in a movement called Neoplatonism, where all of like Plato's ideas um, come back for a sequel of bad ideas, uh, if you will, and become like a whole new thing. And so like you get these sacred geometries that are associated with demons and angels and stuff like that. And the thing that's special about Metatron's cube in terms of its geometry is that if you think about it as like you're looking down, like straight down from outer space or something on like a pyramid, then you would see like all of these lines converging at the apex of the pyramid, right? Or you could think of it as like a hexagon that you're looking down on like, you think of like um, dice, like D&D dice, right? Like there's not just uh, in D&D a six-sided dice. There's, you guys help me. I'm the only one here who doesn't play D&D. There's like <laughs> a three-sided dice, uh, eight-sided dice. There's not a three-sided dice. There's not? It's like a triangle? There's, that's, that's a four-sided dice. Four that is a D4. Dice. Oh, oh, okay, okay. Oh, right, because a cube is six, right? I don't know yeah. why. I always think of a cube as four. I don't know why I do that. Um, <laughs> Because a, a square is four. Right, When you right, right. three-dimension it, yeah, this. Yeah, it turns six. That's right. So you can actually so, get three-sided dice, but they're pretty uncommon. They're, they're not in, like, a set. No. So what all of those D&D dice shapes are, are what's called platonic solids. And each of the platonic solids, and all a platonic solid is, is one shape that is repeated at each like intersectional point and so like a triangle you know repeated four times makes a solid triangle shape right like the four-sided dice or like a square that touches all of the points turns into a cube right it's just a square on every side and so you there's five of those and those represent the five elements of reality in neoplatonism so you have like earth air fire water and spirit just like I was talking about with the alchemical symbols on his ring. And so Metatron's cube contains all of those symbols in its geometry. If you think about it as like a three-dimensional map that you could kind of like spin around and look at from different angles instead of like this two-dimensional, like we're looking down on it straight. It it contains, this is why D&D is evil, by the way. No, mm. not, not really. Um, but it contains... <laughs> 
all of the different elements of reality. And Metatron is like the most powerful angel who helped to write the creation of the universe. And so you're able through like Neoplatonic manipulation of this spiritual geometry to control reality with this symbol. And so it's like, it's a very powerful symbol in, you know, the traditions that it's associated with. And so it was exciting to see that show up and for the show to explicitly say that like it's linking itself with like Neoplatonism with angels. We've been talking about angels, but not really, you know, talking about angels until this showed up. And I was like, oh, my goodness, this is very cool. And it kind of puts a different spin on the line that we got from the book. Like you said, the book is just word for word happening here. Mm-hmm. And it, it it says that line that we talked about in our book episode which is a misquotation um, from the, you know, the Catholic catechism where it says uh, from what we are spirit to what we do matter. And when you think about the platonic solids and the the platonic elements there, the, the matter of the universe being fundamentally these spiritual mathematical representations that can be manipulated through this symbol like that put a different spin on it for me. And I was like, oh, this is very cool. So I really enjoyed that. Also, Alan Rickman, you want to explain your note here? <laughs> well, you didn't. I thought you were going to talk about who and what Metatron was. Well, I was just going to say that Metatron is the name of an angel who was played by Alan Rickman in Dogma. That's true. Yeah. So I did yes. write here that he is an angel, Metatron, uh, that comes from. So maybe you haven't heard of Metatron. You'd be like, well, I'm a good Christian and. Like, no, you're not listening to this podcast. I'm not going to kid myself. Um, <laughs> but you, maybe you are a lapsed Christian and you're like, I've never heard of Metatron from the Bible. And you're right, lapsed Christian. He's not in the Bible. He's from apocryphal texts that lie outside of the canonical tradition of Christianity um, and Judaism and Islam, but is like associated with all three of those Abrahamic faiths. And so... Yeah, he gets used a lot by nerds who uh, love to draw on this stuff, like Kevin Smith, Neil Gaiman, Philip Pullman. He's a popular nerd character. Also, let's just point out, it's a fucking awesome name. It is cool. If you look up the Wikipedia article, the first thing it says is, not to be confused with Megatron. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's pretty great. (laughs) I was going to say, he sounds like a sort of Transformer, doesn't he? Transformer, yeah. yeah. A lot of the Transformer names sound like angel names. (laughs) (laughs) I did like, um, if you watch the end credits on the first episode, it does credit the voice of angels, and I was like, well, that's a spoiler. Jesus. Oh, Just a little bit, yeah. It's amazing how many spoilers you find in the uh, credits. Yeah. Is it like, I'm trying to think where... Is that in the first episode? Yeah, because there... I wrote it down and then forgot to bring it up in our recording. No, I mean, does anybody, does a voice of angels talk in the first episode? I'm trying to remember. No, this is the yeah. this is the first this voice is the, of the this angels. Is it. Yeah. it just gets credit in every episode. Yeah, typical were angel they... bullshit. <laughs> or were they providing the voiceover at the start? I think that's been Ruda every time. Or Seraph. I thought it was Seraphina. I don't know. They have a distortion hey. on their voice. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. So that is Metatron. I have one more thing uh, that 
I thought was really well done in this episode, actually, um, was Mary Malone trying to get into the right state of mind in the cave. And we also get a similar scene with Will, of course, right? Using the knife for the first time. And I love that these are in the same episode with each other and how they resonate with each other. Um, And what Mary Malone like repeats to herself about you need to have like concentration, but you don't need to have like a specific thing in mind. You like no intent, just concentration, right? You like high attention, but low focus kind of a thing. And that is a state of mind that is like specifically talked about by the Buddha in the way that you should meditate in Buddhism, where you are like paying attention, but you're not concentrating on any one thing. You're just kind of letting your thoughts happen and observing them and, and being available to what insights you can have by watching your thoughts instead of participating in your thoughts and kind of asking yourself, why am I thinking about that? And why am I thinking about this? instead of like actively kind of going down the, you know, rabbit trails and being distracted. And so like, I think that pairs really nicely with what we saw in the previous episode, which I didn't really talk about where she's at home and she's using the, um, Oh, why can't I suddenly remember it? Um, the, the sticks and, uh, what is this thing called that we complained about so much? The I Ching. She's using the I Ching and um and then the cave kicks on all by itself and starts to like freak out and try to talk to her even though she's at home. And it suddenly like brings up a picture of the Tai Chi, which is like what we would call the yin yang symbol, but it has like the trigrams around, kind of like the Korean flag, it looks like. Um, And that symbol, kind of like Metatron's symbol, kind of encompasses all of the contingencies of reality. Those trigrams mean like good luck, bad luck, yes, no, you know, and all of these other conditions that have to do with like states of nature and of family. We talked about that when we talked about the book. And then the yin yang symbol, the Tai Chi itself kind of means like the union of opposites and the way that the energies of the universe are always changing. And so when you put all of that together, that symbol represents the universe, not just the universe, but all contingent possible universes, everything that could and does happen. And the, you know, the dust like turns into that because she's concentrating on that in the correct way. And Will is able to pierce through the realities and open a window because his mind joins with that same way of thinking. Uh, And so the show is like explicitly kind of linking these different traditions together in a way that doesn't feel problematic to me and feels like it's honoring the like deep human experience of trying to understand reality and, and the power that our mind can have to explore these spaces within ourselves and how that kind of changes our experience of the world um, when we reflect on it. Yeah, I agree. It feels like it's uniting them by saying that these are all valid ways of interacting with the divine and like different ways that cultures have developed to communicate with the divine. Um, 
at, in a way that's not appropriative or like dismissive or condescending at all. Yeah. And doesn't like the way that we used to do it was kind of syncretically and be like, Oh, that's your, okay. We call that God Zeus. So just so you know, that's the right <laughs> name for that God. Uh, you're basically have just been worshiping the same person we have or like whatever, you know, we used to do that. We showed up by we, I mean, white people, uh, we would show up and be like, Oh, that's, you mean Noah, Noah. That's who you mean when you're talking about a flood. And they're like, no, we have like, it's, it's a whole different story. Like, no, 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 no brown person. And so, yeah, the show is not being like that at all. I feel like, and it's, um, I really, really liked the way that Mary Malone gets into this state of mind. And again, you know, it's linked back to this whole thing of like, this is what works, right? She's not doing that because it's like Buddhism or the I Ching. It's because she found through experimentation that this is the way to interact with the particles that her scientific instruments can detect. And so like this particular state of mind happens to correspond to you know religions but in the way the same way that the philosophers in Shittagatse are, are doing it it's about practical results the same way that Grumman is like looking for different traditions that give him the power to do the thing that he needs to get done like there's a practicality to this that is about like empiricism that I appreciate too that isn't just like esoteric kind of like nonsense in the way that like I talked about Aleister Crowley. I don't know. I really don't like that guy Um, where it's like, it's like you said, Anya, like these things are equivalent and all valid and, and not like in a problematic bad way. And I like that. Like Lyra is like, you can't like, I tried to do this before with the alethiometer, but I was too afraid or, you know, will is in too much pain I like that you can't be like full of fear or anger or pain and do this. And that's like the same thing as different traditions too, where you're trying to like do magic. You can't like try to pray to God or something like that and be like filled with, with pain or like trying to cast a a magical spell in witchcraft or, and, and be full of anger and stuff like that. Like, the results of that will either be bad or it will cancel whatever you're trying to do. And so like, I don't know. It all just feels consistent with like, concentration without intent. Yeah. It's in like, I really love how that is so fundamental to using magic in the story. It's good. I have some other stuff to say about that in the spoiler section. So I had a few general things seeing as this is the next bit of our show document. Yep. Um, firstly, this is the first time we get to see the spectres feeding and it's pretty scary and it's really well done. And in general, I think they're really well done. Me too. Yeah. It looks completely terrifying. different than I imagined it. Yes. But I'm mostly okay with it. Yeah. I found it scarier than I imagined and I, I imagined it very much like the Dementors and it wasn't and I liked that it wasn't. Yeah. I, I presume that they must have been pretty conscious about that. Yeah, where you mean like you want to explain what you mean? Is that or like I take a certain meaning from like it's there's not a vacuum cleaner effect coming out of their <laughs> face? Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> Pretty much that. 
<laughs> I thought you were talking to me. Do you want to like like? Did you want to explain what you mean about being conscious about that? I'm like, they, no. they didn't want a copy no. of very popular. <laughs> I was like, uh. yeah, I was. See, when I saw it, I was like, I wonder if this will be confusing to people. Do they think that Tulio would they think that Tulio is dying if they haven't read the book that he is now dead because he like lies down in the ground? Or like, mm. I would almost want them. To, I don't know. It's it's hard because like we saw the other guy before who was kind of zombie-ish just standing there and the water was overflowing, you know, with his jar. And so I was hoping that we would get somebody eaten up by the specters who's like that afterwards, just kind of like stumbles around. Well, and, the season isn't over yet. Yeah. 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 Um, other things I noticed when they were um with um Grumman there was a lot of kind of cinematog like cinematographically that's a good word uh there was a lot of kind of chopping and changing it was going quickly between um Grumman and I think Lee and the and Lyra and Will and that actually was quite nice and effective I really I really enjoyed that as a kind of technique it just gave gave a bit more link between them which was nice other things oh yeah um the chat with boreal between oliver payne mary malone and lord boreal (laughs) oliver payne sucks he's a big old bag of dicks he really sucks i've got like four different notes in here just saying how much of a dick he is (laughs) i was writing these as i was watching and (laughs) he just sucks I, I have a similar thing, but like for my feelings about Hester, I have like four different points where I just say Hester's great. Hester's great. Still love Hester. She's still awesome. Yep. Yeah, it's truly incredible how how much he sucks for how little he actually does. Like he's just. I think it's the hair. <laughs> <laughs> it's really bad hair. It's not great. I mean, I can't talk right now. I'm sporting a lockdown haircut, but. Overall, um, yeah, he's just ah, oh, he's so annoying. Like the whole time, you just want to pick him up and be like, "Mate, come on, you know what this is. We all know what this is. Come on." Um, and yeah, it was interesting, kind of in that that Boreal used the kind of defense angle rather than the um, funding board corruption angle, which they use in the books. And we actually talked about that at a fair bit of length in at this part in the book um, podcast sections, saying how you kind of you're not just going to have someone with all the power on a board who's deciding your funding, but defense that makes sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. he brought up defense in the book. I think he implied it, but it was this was much more like. Yeah. I'm working with I, I can give you defense money and everyone knows right. what defense money means. Mm. I also just really loved um Mary Malone's reaction to Boreal's like weird woman jibe and she was yes. just like fuck off. Oh, yeah. yeah. Her, <laughs> I feel like her and Mrs. Coulter can say so much with their face. And yes. they're both so good. <laughs> yeah, it was brilliant. I really enjoyed it. And just more generally, her reactions were exactly what most people I know of that ilk would say if someone came in offering 
mysterious defense funding for your stuff you'd be saying okay i don't like this because you've obviously found a way to weaponize what i'm doing so i'm i'm out straight out get out okay i I agree with you except if the defense (laughs) department ever comes to you trying to fund your research say yes because that means we'll get (laughs) spider-man Or really good body armor, which they're already doing. Um, I mean, it, it would be... It's one of those decisions where if if you were confronted with it, then you'd be you'd have to make that decision. But very often, it's going to be like, um, not like this. I'll mm-hmm. just publish how I do. Uh, yeah, it, I, I think... Do you feel that this whole thing is like part of Boreal's plan or that this goes wrong for him? Is Mary Malone shutting down his, like his plan was to take over the research and now he's in charge of it? Or was his plan to break Mary Malone off of the project because Oliver is easier to control? Well, he didn't know Mary before he spoke to her. And I'm sure as soon as he spoke to her, he was like, I can't control her. It's fine if she goes. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think he has his own interests. I don't think he's necessarily being disingenuous with possibly having defense links. And also, if he knows that Lyra's been there, then that's really his aim again. And okay, he's just so saying, that's well, his real I can agenda. get contacts. I think yeah. so. Yeah. I would think both. Mm-hmm. Why not all? Yeah, because he's after Lyra, obviously, but when he picks up on what they're studying. I'm sure he was like, ho, ho, ho. Yes, please. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like evil Santa. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> That's just repetitive. Um. <laughs> Other points I wanted to make. Oh, uh, Chagatsa has bad locks. Like they just... <laughs> <laughs> Somehow this in- the entirety of this city doesn't seem to have a single locked door. Or no, in fact, it has one, and they basically walk through it. Like, <laughs> uh, there's two they stop, because they st- um, uh, Tulio can't get into the building at the end, so that we can see his death out on the street. So they're yes. locked when convenient. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. It's, okay, but- it's amazing that they stole electricity, but they didn't manage to steal locks. <laughs> <laughs> I do love though the way that um, Lyra and Will find their way into the tower by uh, finding the angel on the door. I thought that was just like a nice little detail that they came up with that wasn't in the book. I liked yeah, that too. They made it. it a puzzle. Yeah. <laughs> like an escape room. Yeah. Except they're just... trying to get in. Yes, true, true. I, I, I felt I felt here and there about it. Like, I loved it. I thought it was a much nicer thing. Like, it was nice and it worked, but also it's a little bit on the nose. Oh, look at the, look at the Tower of Angels. Oh, I wonder, there's one door here which happens to have an angel on the front. I wonder where that leads. Oh, it's a secret passage. Oh, what a crazy well, random happenstance. I feel like it had to be kind of obvious because Tulio got in there. Right. But he might yeah. have got in when the doors were open. There are no doors. Yeah, it's a doorless tower. They're like, how do you get in? Oh. It's, 
I did like <laughs> it's not doorless. There's a door. It's just it's, not well, there's on a door. The tower. It's just not attached. Yeah. <laughs> I did like how that whole thing, and you were talking about this earlier, how Tulio feels different. And um and Anya was saying how this was like a million years ago, so I'm just gonna recap it. Uh that like she felt bad for him more than in the book because he wasn't so deranged. Um and it felt to me like there was it it was almost making a connection, but kind of an inverted connection back to when Will's house was broken into and they were coming for his letters. Mm. And like now Will is the one breaking in and coming after it's not Tulio's stuff, but you know what I mean? Like mm. now he's yeah. the robber, he's the aggressor, and um and then that ends up with him getting into a fight and getting injured and Mm-hmm. and uh and all of that stuff i just thought it was interesting how he is kind of victimized someone on on a certain level even though he yeah didn't no want definitely to. while we're on this topic do we want to talk about the fight choreography by oh, which yeah. i mean sure? i would like yeah. to talk about the fight choreography <laughs> yeah would you like to talk about the fight choreography anya <laughs> i think yes i think <laughs> i'm the only one who has like no opinion about this <laughs> um i so my first time through, I didn't really love it, but my second time through, I appreciated it a lot more. I like that Will is clearly kind of holding back a little bit at the beginning, um, and then when he realizes, like, oh shit, I have to, um, like, make this a real fight, um, he just, like, turns it on and starts punching him, and then it it's over like so fast as soon as Will decides to start really fighting and like pulling on his boxing knowledge that they foreshadowed way back in season one. Um, And also just like the way that the, the cinematography worked, like it focuses on Giacomo's face when Will gets his fingers cut. um, Cause Giacomo understands the significance of that and Will does not. Um, and then it focuses on Will's face when Lyra's demon gets kicked and you can see that like the gears are turning in Will's head and cause he like didn't understand that Lyra and Pan were really like physically connected in that way mm-hmm. until that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's like a lot of just really subtle storytelling, um, through that way and like what the camera is choosing to focus on as those different things happen. I thought it was really well done. I would contend that's not choreography, but cinematography. Okay, sure. Yeah. My, my issue was more with the choreography rather than the cinematography, which I thought was very, again, impactful. I hate that word. (laughs) Impacting. I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I thought the choreography was my problem with it in that they do something differently and it doesn't make sense so much to me, but the actual way that they do the thing that they did is well done, if that makes sense. I see. I guess, yeah, I guess maybe I meant choreography, like, not in terms of, um, like, actual choreography, but more just, like, how they plotted out and directed that scene. Kind of visual story. Yeah, the visual storytelling and yeah. and the the momentum and the pacing mm. of the fight um rather than like okay. the actual physical execution of it um okay 
Yeah, we we did a million years ago, me and Anya did an episode of our other podcast about Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And uh, I talked in that about like the idea of um, fight scenes should be like um, a musical number in a musical that they should be like an expression of the emotions of the characters in the moment. And they're, they're like, yeah. there's no, if you're not doing that, then you're, you're not doing a good fight scene. And I think that's the strength of the scene that Anya talked about where Will turns it on, you know, so to speak. Yeah. Of like, yeah. When he, the first punch that he throws when he does that is with his injured hand into Julio's face. And then, <laughs> and then does like a couple of body shots in an uppercut and you're like, wow, that's really badass. Like, and, and it ends the fight immediately. And, uh, yeah, I think it gets across the emotion that Will has of like determination and bravery and like being in a certain headspace and being scared and all of that stuff gets expressed through that choreography really nicely. But yeah, I think all of the other stuff with the fight was kind of a mess in the way that you're saying Francis, where they're like out on the ledge and uh, I don't know, like it was well done what they did, but yeah, I agree that there's like some storytelling confusion happening when you compare it to the book. Yeah. And I I did actually, I, I completely agree that I really like how quick it was. Like fights don't take very long. Yeah. They're yeah. Pretty, often incredibly quick which is kind of why often if you have fights like in the street then people don't come and intervene not because they don't want to but because it's over before they even notice mm-hmm. yeah yeah it was it, it was good it was good i don't mean to do it a disservice but i did just find it a little bit more confusing from the story side i did love when uh, pan goes to get the knife and then immediately drops it yeah. <laughs> yes. He was oh, a panda the whole time. Yeah. He's good. I, I, anytime that Pan is a red panda, I'm happy. He's adorable. <laughs> He's so good. Uh, other things I had. Uh, yeah, I still disagree with their pronunciation of the knife, but I think that's probably a lost cause now. But You mean still... subtle? No, no. <laughs> the... Thank you. <laughs> Are you just not going to say the word? Yeah. Yeah, nope, Alan, I'm don't you know in s- England they pronounce all the letters, so the B really comes out. It's subtle. <laughs> I hate you all. The differing levels. <laughs> they're not knights, they're Cunningas. Cunningas. <laughs> What's that? That's yeah. um, Monty Python. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yep. Uh, other things. I still love the way that no one fucking likes Asriel. Yeah. Literally yeah. no one has said a good <laughs> word about him. <laughs> I do like that change from the book. That Because so many people had so many good things to say about Asriel in the book. And I was just like, oh, this fucker. Yeah. So I, I do like how in this book, everybody is just like, we don't, we just don't care. <laughs> He's <laughs> and, just a dick. Yeah, and Gru- even Grumman who's like, no, you have to care because of this. Like, fuck Asriel, but this. Still, Leah's just like, yeah, no. I don't... Mm. <laughs> I just don't want to... I just don't want him. He sucks. Yeah. 
Uh, one analogy I did quite like, and this is actually a running one throughout the series, and probably not one that's intended, but one that I still think is interesting to draw, is the everybody having a part of themselves that is not their gender. And I quite like the sort of trans analogy that that gives. Um, again, I don't think it's necessarily intentional or not in such um, specific terms, but I quite like it. It's it's interesting just to look at it and say, oh, actually, maybe maybe genders aren't all that different in a lot of ways. And it's quite in- it's just an interesting one. Yeah, I'm glad they kept that line in. Yes, definitely. I think that makes it makes grooming into much more of like what I was trying to say earlier into like a seeker, you know, like Mm. someone who seeks out truth and is willing to be like, Oh wow. Part of me is feminine, like fundamentally. And like, that was a surprise and enlightening. Yeah, exactly. Instead of being like, I can't be feminine and part of me, you know, like, (laughs) or something like that, you know, it was, I really liked it too. Kind of shed the toxic masculinity. Which is pretty good, pretty decent. Uh, the th- I've got three more points. One of which is just, oh my god, the witches are so fucking melodramatic in everything they do. <laughs> everything yeah. has to be a ritual. Everything yeah. is done with logging stairs into the fucking distance. Like <laughs> they that. Keep, they keep flying off to different random yes. forests. <laughs> yes. As soon as something bad happens, they just piss off. <laughs> but I like it because it makes them not human. They are. They don't react in the way that a human would react, and in a manner that's quite nice. They feel more ethereal. They don't feel like people, and in a manner they feel like they don't understand people, and I kind of like that. I guess I just sort of feel like maybe it's just because like I know it's a TV show, and those scenes make me think we filmed this forest meeting over here, and then we walked ten feet over here and pointed the camera this way, and we filmed this forest meeting over here. <laughs> You know, like, I can't, I I can't get that out of my head. But then we interspersed the scene with them flying all over for a different forest. I'm like, oh my God, just, just have a meeting spot. Jesus Christ. Yeah, Yeah, for instance, Um, I I felt similarly to the way you did, where it was like, I'm so annoyed by most of the witch scenes. Like, they, they grate in some way. Um, But then thinking about it more it's kind of like yeah they are clear there's something about them that's clearly just like not human and feels very uncanny and so maybe part of that is on purpose i don't know also re-listening to our book episodes i was a little bit more surprised than i should have been probably um to hear that we complain about the witches all the time when we were talking about the book yeah. too. So this is a just lot. more of the same. <laughs> I'd forgotten yeah. uh, that they were the, they just, definitely the weakest parts of the book too. Yes. And they just feel a little bit socially maladjusted. <laughs> it's quite funny, really. <laughs> you can't imagine sitting down and having Christmas with them, opening some presents and going over to old Auntie <laughs> Serafina, sitting on her lap and she tells you stories. Now she's going to sit there and be like, you're worthless. No one cares about you. The world is going to die. (laughs) I'm glad this episode with all the Christmas references is going to be coming out in December. Yeah. (laughs) Just, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Final two points. Um, I really liked that they put their own twist on the knife. 
Do you see what I did nice. there? Uh, nice. Knives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's not what I see it as. I see it as the one on the book cover, but I I liked that they did that. I thought it worked. And I guess it slightly explains why it didn't stick quite so much to the hilt into the roof. Because I like, guess. Yeah, it makes sense from a design yeah. point. Yeah. For, it, it also makes it a terrible knife because, like, it that does. whole section at the <laughs> end like, is basically used. It's like if you buy a knife from fucking Bear Grylls or something, they've taken a perfectly lovely knife and then added serrations down most of the end. And you're like, this isn't a saw. <laughs> this isn't any use to me for the main purpose of this knife. Just fuck off. <laughs> oh, so we've had another weapons rant today. And finally... Uh, I just really like the way that in this, both in the books and the film, but it comes across very well in the film, Lyra's starting to learn to give up control. And she's starting to put some trust in other people other than herself. And that's a huge change from her at the beginning where she basically only trusts herself for some good reasons. Mm-hmm. But she mm-hmm. she is very, she's a powerhouse and she's, fully single-minded she doesn't really listen to anybody and that starts working to her detriment as people start dying because of her actions and this is like the next part of her character arc and i like it yeah i thought them having the bathtub scene which kind of mirrors the other couple of bathtub scenes that they've had was Mm. like really interesting in terms of her character it almost made me think that maybe lyra is starting to feel like will's roger you know like yeah 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 like she is moving into that role of of being his sidekick instead and maybe that is also causing some anxiety for her given what happened to roger and like you know but also it mirrors the scene with uh mrs coulter kind of giving her a bath and how she was being kind of victimized and abused in that. And there's just like all these interesting connections that they're making by including and that scene there. They they had a scene where Roger walked backwards into her having a bath, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. And now great. she's mm-hmm. in Roger's role. That's what I mean. And she, yeah. yeah, she's and she's learned that yeah, she I guess she you know, she says that she thinks about Roger all the time. Um yeah. and so yeah, this is just like another example where we know that that's what she's thinking about in that moment. That's where she got that idea from. I love that even though Lyra doesn't look at Will, Pan definitely does sneak a peek. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and it's, it's, I thought that was so cute and funny. And like we know based on um, other stuff in the text, right, that it's not truly like a mind meld between Pan and Lyra. Like she yeah. doesn't know what he sees unless he specifically tells her. But I feel like, I don't know. My interpretation is that she does, she'll get like a vague general feeling maybe of what Pan knows, um, even if she doesn't know all the details and so I was just trying to think about, like, does Lyra even know that Pan looked? Or, like, what does she, what is she experiencing from that when Pan looks at him? Um, and I guess mm. I was thinking that maybe it's, um, I don't know, some sort of, how do I want to say this? 
I think in that moment, she's filled with, like, empathy and, and like, caring for him. Um, but it's not voyeuristic in any way, you know? It's, like, a yeah. way of yeah. her being able to look at him with, like, removing the sexual side of it, you know? Like, she gets to to have that comforter role um, without the weirdness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just as a suggestion to Lyra, if Will says, let's go up a mountain to find my father, maybe just stay down <laughs> at the bottom. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, yeah, exactly. Because when she does take that bath and, and Roger does that, she's been badly wounded emotionally by Asriel being like, I never called myself your father. And that's the point, you know, and like, and I brought you this alethiometer and he's like, oh, I never really needed this. Thanks. Thanks for not being my daughter because I don't claim you or love you. And then she's like, (laughs) you know, like she, it's not having your fingers cut off, but damn it, you know, it cut down to the bone and, and Roger was there for her. And, you know, I think she's trying to be there for Will in a moment where he's scared and hurt and, you know. But at the same time, I think that she's thinking about all that stuff. And it's just like you said, it's very visually like it's there for us in a way that it doesn't have to be said. It's so elegant. Yeah, that scene and the scene that we talked about before where she helps him with the knife. Both so important I because it's important for the story going forward to really show that these two characters have a connection and care about Mm -hmm. each other. And uh, like within this season. Mm-hmm. And I really like that they're not forgetting about that, and because I think it would be easy to stick with the plot and forget that that they need motivation for the things that they do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that they have to really care about each other by the time this is over. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so maybe this is a good time because I wanted to talk a little bit about that scene where Lyra is helping Will learn how to cut, and um, Pan kind of approaches will and then will touches him um Mm -hmm. kate i think you probably have feelings on this as well Oh yes um (laughs) how it was poorly done mostly yep okay so maybe you go first and then i'll give my (laughs) thoughts on it (laughs) a in the first episode they literally said out loud don't touch a demon in this episode there was a reminder about that when tulio kicked pan and you saw how it physically affected Lyra. But they still felt the need to have her say it. And that line made it awkward. If they had just cut yes. that line, it would have been 10,000 times better. Completely different than how I imagined it in the book, but still good. Why was it there? Why was it there? Why? <laughs> it, it made a, an emotional, important scene into exposition. And it was... Like within a scene about different exposition. It, if they had That's just so well cut said. it where she kind of shakes her head and doesn't say anything, it would have been great. Mm-hmm. <sighs> oh, well. Okay. The best. Like the actors did the best they could. I I agree that that would have improved the scene. Um, but I actually didn't focus on that. I focused on the good stuff that was there. Um. I (laughs) I am envious of your ability to do that. Everything else in that scene was was good. I liked it. I liked how they had Pan come out up and kind of rub his bandage and then his finger kind of touched him. I liked how they had Pat at his super cute panda. 
my favorite pan. <laughs> I, everything about it was so good until she said that. Yeah. I, I did. I loved the expression on Daphne Keene's face, though, because you can mm. see that she's surprised. And I think her surprise is coming not from the fact that Will touched Pan, but the fact that Pan wanted to be touched. Yeah. Um, and so it's like she's being surprised by a part of herself. And then also she's surprised that like she didn't hate it when it happened. Yeah. And and I think, uh, yeah, Daphne Keene just portrays that so perfectly. Um, it like, it really adds some layers to that. And it makes you, it makes you realize like, just how powerful a connection is developing between the two of them. Mm-hmm. And I think I wrote this down in the spoiler section, but I even think somebody else mes- uh, men- mentioned it already. Um, but the juxtaposition of Boreal's demon reaching out for Mrs. Coulter. Yeah. So and the way that she like grabs onto the monkey, but still kind of lets it happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was an amazing contrast. That yes, that was so good. Yeah. And it's really weird because, like, all the elements are there. You know, like, that's some really great storytelling. And then they, like, it's exactly like you said, Kate, where they are like, hey, just in case you forgot, not, don't do this. And it's like, oh, you, like, you're giving us so much, like, it without saying it. And it's so good. And then you, but then you said it and it's not good now. So don't do that. No, I love the way Miss Coulter is like holding her demon back and the demon is just yeah. like clearly so disgusted and angry and she mm-hmm. just has the cold smile on her face. And I love also that there's like a little bit of um, uncertainty there. Like we don't actually know if the snake touched her or not yeah. or if it just came close. Like I loved all of that, the, the ambiguity. Um I thought was uh, a good choice. That whole dinner scene is really good. I think it's oh, just it's like fabulous. Yeah. yeah, it just shows off once again how like these men keep trying to control her, like in the previous episode, and they are terrible at it. They're so bad, and she like always turns the tables on him. It's so good. Uh, so I just a well, I actually kind of have a lot of notes, but anyways, some notes here that I've got. Um, another thing that I thought was poorly done with the voiceover at the beginning that I forgot to mention was at the end they say something like in the right hands it can save us all over will and I'm just like oh fuck you like that's just bad that's just actually bad writing there (laughs) and somebody must have known that uh I do wanted I did want to bring up that when he's going up the river Lee mentions something like how he really wants a bacon sandwich and oh my god I always want an English bacon sandwich. <laughs> I'm, um, I miss, I miss being in England and having somebody just bring a plate full of bacon and sausages and bread and be like bacon sandwiches. I'm like, yes. Please. Is that what that is? I don't even know. Yeah. What, what is the bacon sandwich? <laughs> you just put me, bacon on some bread or a bun and you eat it and seriously? it's fucking amazing. How <laughs> is how is yeah. that a question? What is a bacon sandwich? What is it, an anything is not, sandwich? <laughs> Sorry, they is... have bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwiches here, but like, no, yeah, that's a here... BLT. <laughs> yeah, no one just eats right. only bacon and bread. Yeah, in England then they do, and it's try the it. best <laughs> fucking thing in the world. Do you put but butter the... on it? Is there a sauce of 
any kind or <laughs> so. some? So, <laughs> okay. And Caitlin, do you, you want to take this one? No, I no, was going to say some, most people that I saw did put butter on it. Uh, at the time of my life, I did not enjoy butter on sandwiches. Please don't. I was 18. I was fucking weird, okay? Um, okay, we all make mistakes. It's just like crappy white bread or like a white hot dog bun, and you put yep. bacon in it, and it's got to be flabby. It cannot be crispy. Okay. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. It no. sounds good. Yeah. Bacon. It's different. It's bag bacon as well. What is the bacon to bread ratio like? Personal taste. Okay. As, as much as you can fucking fit in it. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's a, I mean, more bacon is better bacon. It's also back bacon, not streaky bacon. Never yeah, streaky see, bacon. This is the thing about it. Here, I can get some bacon and some bread and make it happen, but you need that crappy English bacon. <laughs> really it's good Canadian bacon doesn't work as well. You need. It's often that. Danish. Well, I just meant the stuff that's in your grocery store. Oh, yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, I don't know what it is. It's Maybe it's cured differently than we do it here. Because I don't necessarily mean a different cut of bacon. I just mean it's just different. It cooks differently. It's um, I can't even describe it unless you've tried it both ways. It's just Hmm. different. I think. um, Is is it smoked in Canada? uh, Yes. Interesting. It's probably just the cut then. It's probably just that it's back bacon rather than streaky. but anyway, uh, the other thing is uh, bacon sandwiches. You could you could have mayo in it. I do actually really like mayo in it. And the other thing is the big sauce would be brown sauce or maybe ketchup. Okay. Brown sauce. Brown sauce and is like A1. Is that what that is? I don't know. Brown sauce you don't know what is brown, so- brown sauce. No. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I have no just, connection to English culture, just to be clear. <laughs> like I no, I I don't disagree. Just here, even like you can request it in restaurants here and get it. It's not like provided the way ketchup is. But you oh, can no. say, yeah. hey, have you guys people got- would just look at you and be like, What are you talking about? Yeah. Oh, it's America. so good. It's like vinegary slash brown slash savory. Oh, it's so brown good. Is not Tangy. Flavor. Tangy. It's probably a one sauce. I I don't. Yeah, I no. It is. It is just brown sauce. I don't know how else to describe it. Yeah, that's just what it's called. If you went up to yeah, a yeah. food van and you said, "Can I have the breakfast bun with brown sauce?" You get a breakfast bun with brown sauce, and it would be the food of gods. <laughs> <laughs> that's the other thing you could ask for, and they would be like, "Yeah, here you go." Yeah, yeah. If you ask for ambrosia, you either get that or um, <laughs> a sort of set pudding, but not usually a breakfast van. <laughs> Yeah, I did think it was like he, he was like there better be a bacon sandwich at the end of this and then there was and he was like amazed and I was like Lee the demon was right there yeah. I mean like he heard you say it. <laughs> she heard it's not oh yeah you're right it's it's like well I meant that Grumman oh. he that's what I meant it was like through the demon but it was right. it was not like, it was like wow how did you do that it was like you said it into his cell phone I don't know what to tell you like he heard it. Uh, so then Grumman and, and Lee are talking about the knife at one point. And so he says it could kill immortals when he's listing all the things it could do, which I just genuinely thought was them trying not to say it's for killing God, which is literally the name of the knife, God Killer. Is that a spoiler? Yeah, like, how do you know? How do you know it can kill immortals? And doesn't that, like, undermine their name and title a little? Well, sure, but I just thought that was them trying not quite to piss yeah. people off right away <laughs> which i thought was an interesting choice of theirs is all like a political move you mean in, yes in meta story okay 
I was confused by it. I was like, are there examples of this? Like, yeah. Yeah. Have we killed immortal beings with it? I don't know. I like how uh, Will passes out after yeah. he gets his fingers cut off, which did not happen in the book, but I thought it was very realistic that you would just be like, I'm out. Yep. Hell yeah. Goodbye. <laughs> and then wakes up yeah. with Pan right at his face, <laughs> which is how I'd like to wake up every day, obviously. Aww. <laughs> it did kind of bother me in the Tower of Angels how there's like, like when he takes the poison at the broken window mm-hmm. i noticed that on the window there's like latin phrases in the in the glass and i'm like why why is i know that they're speaking english and that's weird but like is latin like that's just a magical language now right like latin is just a magical language and not a historical language that like i don't know it was like the tower of magical philosophers with latin all over i was like why why is there latin here Shouldn't there be like whatever they speak or English words since they speak English, apparently? It just seemed weird. It's all a bit weird. We just don't ask these questions. If there was like, I don't know, I would have been more comfortable with symbols or something or like a fake alphabet. I don't know. But since I could read it and I was like, that's Latin. And then I was then it bothered me. And I was like, did they steal Latin from our world? Is Latin like also in their world? If so, why aren't they Italian? It's just confusing. I don't know. Did anyone else have any points that they wanted to bring up before we move on to spoilers? We covered all of my notes um, in various other places, except for I wanted to see how you guys felt about the cutting special effects. I thought they were pretty good. I was, you know, slightly worried, um, but I think they did a good job. Do you mean? Yeah, agreed. Making windows? Yeah. Is that what you mean? Yeah. I didn't even think about them one way or the other, so must have been pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was great. You know, because they didn't, they didn't stand out in any way, and I think special effects, when they don't stand out, that's that's what you want. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I especially thought when he closes it, and that's really the scene where it could have been real dicey, mm-hmm. I felt like Amir Wilson's performance and Terrence Stamp kind of selling it Mm-hmm. like the two of them together like really made that scene work for me and I thought it was great the way that he waves his hand through where it was and he's like and he's kind of delighted by it in just the right way I don't know like that was some of the, some of the acting where I was like man I don't know what awards British people get that he <laughs> should have one knighthood definitely knighthood yeah a knight Amir Wilson he's amazing <laughs> baronet C. Yeah. <laughs> I also really enjoyed how um, Giacomo basically had to tell him to keep it secret, keep it safe, but they, uh, <laughs> yeah, but they, they did, they, they managed to not quite say the exact line. Uh, they also avoided another terrible quote when they said um, they chose badly instead of poorly. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> This knife has great power, and you have great responsibility with it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Will, I am possibly your... Mm. (laughs) That's that's later. Okay, well, if you want to avoid spoilers, now is the time to say goodbye. Next time, we'll be talking about Episode 5, The Scholar. 
If you like our show, please take some time to leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. I'm Caitlin, and you can follow me on Twitter at Inferior Caitlin. I'm Francis, and you can follow me on Twitter at Francis Windrum. Follow the show on Twitter at MOTPod. If you need more than 280 characters to speak your mind, send your emails to contact at hallowedgroundmedia.com. Now spoilers! Woohoo! Did we want to do Metatron first? <laughs> Just because it's here? Uh, I mean, <laughs> I remember that Metatron is a character, and I saw Metatron's cube, and I was like, this is introducing Metatron! How smart! Uh, and But that is literally... I, Yeah, I just know that Metatron... Metatron's like the bad guy, right? Yeah. Um, He's... Yeah. yeah. He's who Mrs. And, Coulter and Asriel end up falling into the abyss with forever. Right. And so I was like, oh, this is cool that we're like, I don't know. But it's it's very subtle. <laughs> like, Oh, yeah. 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 But it, it shows that choice. they know what they're doing there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Or it's completely unintentional. Oh, I, no. I, I can't not. imagine that. I can't imagine that they were like, let's put in some fun geometry here. <laughs> oh, here's one called Metatron. It looks the best. And then later on, somebody was like, oh, were you trying to like, and they were like, no, no. Is that a character then? Oh, yeah. God. <laughs> oh, cutting- my goodness. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> what a surprise. <laughs> no, I think it's intentional. Um, and it was, I thought it was great. I really loved it. It changed that scene for me in a way of like, I was like, oh, wow, this is like different now. Mm-hmm. And then just somebody's got about Joe Perry dying here. Okay. Jopery. Yeah, Jopery. I'll, I'll talk about that. Okay, so one thought that I had while watching this episode, now that we've met John Perry, um, in the book, obviously he gets uh, knifed by that, or no, arrowed, bow and arrowed, um, by his hmm. spurned lover oh, of yeah, a witch. Oh, yeah, hasn't come up. Yeah, so I'm assuming that they have wisely decided not to have that character. Um, and so I'm assuming they're going to find some other way for him to die moments after he meets Will. And so mm. I wanted all of us to speculate wildly about how that was going to happen. Honestly, and like this is how I wish they'd done it in the book, too. I hope he just dies of not being having lived in his world yeah yeah Mm. that's like once he's fulfilled uh his purpose yeah or something then he's just like loses the will to live or something or like all of the the damage catches up to him and that that just really drives home the choice that they have to make at the end of the story too yeah Mm -hmm. yeah i agree i think yeah something a more uh, natural or less violent deaths. Um, I hope that, yeah, he just kind of like slowly deteriorate or like rather quickly, um, you know, kind of starts deteriorating and then dies. Yeah. I, I genuinely don't think they're going to do that way because he, they have him looking way too healthy <laughs> for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I think he's going to stub his toe. 
uh, develop sepsis and then try mm-hmm. and heal it using traditional healing methods, which turn out not to work at all, and then die. Oh, <laughs> an indictment of traditional <laughs> medicine. I did no, just an indictment of him. Maybe the specters <laughs> will get him, or the specters will start to get him, and then he just no, kills he has himself. to be dead because they see him in the world of the dead. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, d- I didn't. Yeah, so I guess the specters can't get him, but maybe he kills himself to avoid the specters or something. Oh, maybe. That would yeah. no, because well, that wouldn't work because he's right beside Will, and Will has the knife. And you would oh, think, yeah. given his magic, that he would be able to like work with the specters. I like. I would expect him to be doing so much magic that it has some kind of like totality cost on his health. You yeah, know, that's true. Very convenient. Oh, that's right. Because yeah. you just have to make all the wins and like, right? Do all that. He's magic. farting so much. Yeah, that he's... he dies. He dies of farting. Oh, not that again. is my actual answer now. Thank you. <laughs> that's right. Thank you for. I'm pretty sure that was what I said in the book podcast. Thank you for reminding me of my excellent idea. You did not say that he dies of farting, but yes, <laughs> of like magical use. No, no, no. That he expended himself magically. Getting him yeah. and Lee, we, yeah, to safety. Farting we understood. His way to Don't worry. <laughs> um, I I literally did think that when he sits back with the big smile on his face and the wind blowing, I was like, <laughs> <laughs> "Hey, guess what? Guess what? Yeah, pull my finger." Okay, I am <laughs> I am changing my uh choice of demon for alan alan's new demon <laughs> is uh a warthog um <laughs> a la pumba from lion king i like oh, it oh there you go i like it alan's new like demon pumba. is a five-year-old <laughs> <laughs> speaking of that though i do like that they had that conversation between john and uh lee where he talks about wanting to leave a better world behind for his son because mm-hmm. it it's just going to give him more motivation for when he betrays Lee. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. I I suspect, well, like, it. yeah, because I like that they also put so much focus on him making that promise to Lee so that hopefully somebody doesn't have to pop out of the bushes and be like, oh, you betrayed Lee in the way that they're handling demons. <laughs> <laughs> Don't touch a demon. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I also really liked that they had Mrs. Coulter wearing a locket in the scene, which I'm, I didn't even notice. I'm assuming that that is the locket that will play a pivotal part in the next season. Yes. I am a failure mm-hmm. as a fan because I didn't oh. notice. It's okay. I a fan of the books, a fan of Ruth Wilson, a fan of Mrs. Coulter. I have failed us all. Well, I failed to notice uh, John Perry's trepanning scar, so I need to go back and look at that after this. So we all fail in our own both, ways. Both, both of you ways, put your hand whales. over a candle <laughs> yeah. for 30 seconds yeah. and let it burn you. Pay for sins. Um, I also, so this was something that I had a question on. Um, when Mary is talking to um, the cave, Um, she asked that question about angels intervening in human evolution Mm -hmm. and, um, and they said yes, because vengeance, are we supposed to know what that means? It's literally a line from the book. I do not remember that. (laughs) 
in the in the book it's much less intense they say vengeance and she says vengeance and then she's like oh rebel angels the war in heaven and everything of course paradise lost yeah Yeah. but how is that intervening in human evolution well they're not saying that is intervening they're saying that's why they intervened i mean that is literally what paradise lost is where basically satan gets thrown out of heaven because he wants to be king and god is like yo i'm king And then Satan's like, okay, well, I'm going to ruin human innocence then. And he goes to Earth and like, oh, so that's original sin. Right. Yeah. So that's what they mean by intervening in human evolution is the serpent and the. They don't get to. Yeah. Yeah. They don't get to to be innocent. I'd like to say that they don't mean that literally. (laughs) They're not saying, yes, there was an Adam and Eve and there was a garden and an apple. They're saying yes. We are. We have fought for humans to be smart and aware, like John. Yes. Like yeah, like John right. Perry was saying. I see. Because yes. for because for free will the, and yes, curiosity. Blah blah blah. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So okay. So real quick with that, and I will talk about this more in the third book. Sorry, is, I am strangely literal. I cannot yes. help it. I need you to explain <laughs> this to me. Explain the metaphor, please. Nice. Well, the funny thing is, it might not be totally a metaphor because, like, by them bringing in the Metatron symbol right there, like I mentioned, Neoplatonism and stuff, there's, like, a lot of Gnosticism happening, like, in the background, which I haven't talked about at all, really. Um, But, like, it, Gnosticism, like, radically reinterprets the Adam and Eve story to be what Caitlin is saying of, like, this is not bad, this is good, that all of this happened to us. It's not sin. It's like knowledge. It's learning. It's gnosis. And Gnosticism is also something I know about because of anime. Because of anime. Yeah. Anime is the great <laughs> teacher. I actually kind of <laughs> like that just as a complete aside here that like for some reason Western people seem so obsessed with Eastern religion and vice versa is apparently <laughs> true. <laughs> They're very into Christianity and like doesn't this make our robot thing spookier? Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, like Metatron is actually like from he's this dude in the Bible named Enoch and he became like from a human to an angel. And it's like there's this whole like our whole story about like Satan getting thrown out of heaven and stuff comes from this book called the Book of Enoch. And that's what I was talking about. There's like apocryphal, you know, texts that aren't part of the Bible and that is the book of Enoch and Enoch becomes Metatron. Uh, God like elevates him. And there's these other angels who like want to help humanity and they literally enter our gene pool and change human evolution. And like they're having babies with us and making these like another race of humans and stuff that cause all kinds of problems and are the reason that like the flood happens and continue to cause problems all the way until the end of the world. And Metatron is like very wrapped up in all of that stuff. So like literally also messing with our evolution in terms of like Gnostic, the Gnostic view of history. But I, well, from things that we know in the third book, though, I would say that that is not what they're saying here. Because no, the, but, the whole yeah. point of some of the angels as characters in the third book are that they don't have physical bodies. Right. 
that and, and even that was like such a cool thing when they talk about like in the book when they meet the angels and uh and it's talking about like Ruta sees them as human mm-hmm. but actually they're like these informational architecture things and they and now when i think about that i'm like oh he meant like metatron's cube like the true form of it is like this thing that we see here for a second you know what i mean like like that is cooler to me to think about than like there's i don't know some kind of like dusty weird light matrix the way that i was imagining it in my head but that they're like these symbols yeah i i don't mean that like the gnostic uh stories are like literally true in his dark materials or something but that they that like the gnostic idea of like the angels are interfering for like because god sucks and like wants to keep humanity ignorant and is trying to like get involved to help us is like a part of the story. But that, you know, some angel, there are angels on either side of that equation. And then there are also like, sometimes Metatron is like rebelling against God or like is trying to help humanity, but also enslave it at the same time. There's like different versions of Metatron. And I think all of that is like, has a relationship with this story in interesting ways. So I don't think it's just like, you're being too literal about evolution. I think that there's like stuff there. All right, everyone, that's it for this week. We will see you all for the next episode. And don't forget the bacon sandwiches are the best. They really are. I did want to say, like, mainly for myself, but we can't talk about Grumman being John Perry because the show is like. What? No, yes, no. we can. The show is we like. See the, no. We see the actor in season one. I agree. We're looking at him. I agree. But I think the show is like, this is, you don't know this is John Perry yet, which is no, we, messed up. But I even. I even said, hey, that's Moriarty in that picture when he went to his grandparents' house. I agree. I agree. <clears throat> but, like, I, that is my recommendation as far as spoilers go. I don't think you're supposed to know it's Will's dad. No, I think... Yeah, I think you could have totally I disagree with it, that. But, well, we can, I, we can talk about it then if you want to. Okay. But a, mainly, mainly the books for me, are fucking like, out. I know. Like it's not it's not it's not like in season 1 where they put in uh book 2 shit. It's not like a complete surprise. The books have been out there for like 20 years. Yeah. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> like well, that's not, not how we've generally handled spoilers, but <laughs> I agree that that's not how we've handled spoilers, but I think the no, fact no, no, that no. his Sorry, picture has been everywhere. Yeah. Sorry, I'm not talking about yeah, book spoilers. Like, I'm talking. I thought you were talking about like, like HBO embargoes. Oh no 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 no! I don't care about that. I think oh, okay. I think that the show. Then actually, I, you're totally wrong. No, you're wrong. Okay, <laughs> this isn't even an argument. We've so, literally seen pictures. The cutting back and no, it's so obvious. If people yeah, don't get his, it, they're dumb, and we're gonna spoil them. That's okay. Well, in the pictures, I th- well, I think the show, we can talk about it. Maybe we should just talk about it in the show. Well, I think but we already maybe, have some We're recording out- all of this. We, are, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, yeah. we already have outtakes and we haven't even started. Yeah, it's I okay. forgot That's that we were already recording. Oh, everybody's <laughs> going to know how mean I am to Alan. 
<laughs> I was just mainly saying it for myself because every time I was thinking about it, I was like, oh, and then this and then this. But actually, I can't talk about that yet because I don't think we're supposed to know until we get to the end. No, we're definitely supposed to know. I, I, I strongly disagree. Every time that we see him in in the pictures, like in the YouTube and stuff, he's blonde. Like they have made him look different. That he has like a bad oh, haircut now. He has like a, a <laughs> top knot bullshit going on and, and all kinds of other stuff. Man so buns think, are great. Yeah. It depends on what you mean by that. You know, up on top, not so much. But uh, <laughs> I I think that the, the show is, we believes we don't know. To yeah, well, we, yeah, we can draw yeah. attention to we it talk, and say, hey, we, can talk, this... we can talk about it. I mean, we can straight up say it's the same fucking actor. It's fine. Yeah. It's weird that he's <laughs> like, playing two roles. <laughs> <laughs> I like I, that, actually. That's quite good. <laughs> no. It, I, I, I think we should just leave it and let's go. And sorry for quite how sassy I was being. I thought you were talking about, like, for HBO reasons. Oh, no, no, no. I don't think they care. Yeah. They don't care. Okay. So yeah. sorry for how sassy I was being. I thought the recording was off. <laughs> <laughs> that that too. That too. <laughs>